Hello and welcome to this VFM special. This is the one where Nico Aspinall and me, Darren Philp, respond to the DWP consultation on value for money. FM is a collaboration between myself, Nico Aspinall, a pensions and investment actuary with more than 15 years experience in DC, where I've been working for single employer trusts, investment consultancies, master's trusts, investment managers, and as an investment consultant. And me, Darren Philp. I'm a, at heart a policy and PR person. I, I cut my teeth at HM Treasury in a variety of different roles, including heading up the pensions team. I'm, I was the director of policy at the National Association of Pension Funds when it was the NAPF, obviously now the PLSA, and had policy and public affairs roles at People's Pension and Smart Pension. I've been working in pensions for 16 or so years, and I'm now an independent consultant. So VFM, we've managed to get more than 120 listeners on a weekly basis, and uh probably as much as 200 casual listeners to each episode. We've done away, haven't we, We've done very well. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. Um, we can only assume they're all interested in DC pensions because that's really what we talk about, There's isn't it? There's not a lot else, is there? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think we've recorded more than 12 episodes since we started the podcast at the beginning of 2023, um, interviewing people across the DC industry uh, to get their perspectives. We've, we've tried to get uh, different guests with different point of views, with different backgrounds. And it's been great to um, have that collaboration and discussion with our guests because um, while they don't all agree, um, there are lots of common themes emerging from the consultation. So uh, I think the structure of what we're going to talk about is mostly those themes. Um, so we'll probably spend a, a bit of time on that, won't we, Darren? Um, and then we will come to some specific questions that uh, we thought we should we should respond to. Sounds good. Although you so could the... have told me that before we started the podcast, Nico. <laughs> <laughs> so the first theme, uh, I think, is the focus on investment performance. Um, so that's that's right. Uh, the focus in the consultation of saying that investment performance is essentially where you should be thinking about the value of a pension scheme. Um, so the other features of quality and service, uh, I think it, 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 it's, it, it is right that they are assessed, but I think the innovation that is put forward in the consultation um, is, is entirely right, that they should be assessed in the light of whether those are things that will improve member outcomes as defined by investment performance. So I think as a package, we welcome that. Um, and we've had a kind of consistent theme uh, coming from our guests uh, on that, haven't we, Darren? I think, I think that's right. Um, you know, ultimately, um, is a pension scheme working for people? Well, it depends on what they get out of the end of it. And we know that in a DC world, um, contributions, contributions, contributions are king. Um, but then it's um, how that money is invested and how that money grows. So I think it is definitely right that um, the, the consultation focuses on performance. And um, going back to one of our really early episodes uh, with David Farrer, um, he was particularly strong on that point, Nico, um, mm. where you know I think he, he, he wasn't quite saying that it all boiled down to just investment. But if you don't get the investment right, then um, the scheme is not going to be value for money, is it? Mm. Yeah, 100%. So that's quite an uncontroversial one, isn't it? Um, well, it? I think there's detail. There's detail under the hood, isn't there, which we'll come on to. Um, but uh, yeah, let's move on from that one. That's that's straightforward. Well done, DWP. We 100% agree. We do. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, so uh, one, of, one of the points that we, we have talked about, yeah, is um, the for money part of the assessment and wh why that is included as one of the potential values to be assessed. So, so, so what do we mean by that? Well, um, the DWP in their consultation talk about investment performance, 
they talk about costs and charges, and then they talk about um, scheme administration and wider services and stuff. But but I suppose one of the themes that has emerged, and we've picked up on this a few times, Nico, mm. is um, you know should costs and charges be um, assessed separately? from returns and, and, and wider scheme features. Now, we're not saying at all um, that costs and charges should not be transparent and they should be transparent. But if you are trying to focus on um, performance and outcomes, should we be having such a focus and one of the pillars of their consultation being focused on um, costs and charges independently from everything else? Yeah, yeah. I mean... You know, we've got this weird system where instead of looking at gross performance and then uh, understanding what it costs you to get that return, you look at net performance and essentially then look at how much of that performance was costs. So, you know, I think there's a risk we're looking at value for money for money rather than looking at, you know, outcomes. Um the quality service elements, uh, trustee elements that, that kind of re- receive those outcomes, and then comparing comparing across the industry what it would cost for you to get similar outcomes, which to me is how you would run a value for money assessment in any other kind of commercial environment. So, so you would actually, because yeah, because I think this goes this this is this is quite important because. You know, one of the reasons that we uh, welcome this consultation and one of the reasons that um, I think the industry welcomes a consultation and the DWP are doing this is to shift the uh, focus away from cost and more onto value. Now, that's got to be a good thing. You know, we, we have had yep. a race to the bottom when it's come to, you know, pensions in the UK, um, especially around sort of costs and charges. We know that, um, you know, that is increasingly... Um, the key sort of element of buying decision um, driven by the consultants or driven by, um, you know, the, the employer just understands this stuff better. You know, it's much easier mm-hmm. to sort of demonstrate value um, if you're consulting for an employer by saying, yeah, well, I've got a X percent reduction in charge for you rather than talk a bit more vaguely about net returns and impact investment and all of that type of stuff. But, but you know, are we... Are, as this consultation shot itself in the foot, Nico, um, by having sort of costs and charges as a as a separate element, and you know, do we think that ultimately, you know, we it should be, you know, we should go into what you were saying, which is these are your gross investment returns, these are the um, you know the the elements of costs um, that drag against those investment returns, um, and this is the overarching value for money assessment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. We're still, despite the transparency that we have on costs and charges, we're still in a world where providers want to obfuscate um, exactly what costs and charges they have. And, you know, there's there's a number of elements in this where in this consultation where I think the DWP is rightly trying to kind of lift up the lid, um, uh, lift up the carpet and just see what's being brushed underneath it. But fundamentally, we have to come back to a gross performance figure which should be the same across all different employees and pot sizes. And, you know, there, there are a number of different ways you can get different pricing, but everybody should be sharing the same gross performance for the same asset allocation. Um, and then talking about essentially why it is value for money that if I work for a small employer and I make small contributions, I should be charged more for that. Mm. And I think there are justifications there. Mm. But at the moment, all of that is glossed over. And I, I just can't see how a, a, a process to talk about value for money as an industry enables more of that glossing over, which I think is unfortunately where this kind of third pillar of costs and charges kind of lends you to. Yeah, and, and I don't think you're saying that you're not saying that net returns aren't important. Yeah, mm. uh, because net returns are important because that's your money in, money out. Yeah, um, I think it's just the sort of how you consider it as part of the mix that ultimately yep. you do need that gross performance, you do need the costs and charges, um, and then you're you know you're turning that into a net figure to to sort of make that assessment. Um, but doing it net and then having the cost of charges sort of next to it um, doesn't doesn't quite work. Although you know um, th- this is quite a nice bridge and um, to the to, to to one of the proposals within the consultation which is um, in terms of the net performance figure, I think the DWP are proposing that one figure is net of investment costs only 
and one is um, net of total costs only, which you know basically allows um, the cost of admin and the cost of investment to be split up. And um, I don't think we can claim total credit for that, Nico. But I think um, <laughs> both of us have been arguing that you know that's got to be a, a, a way forward as part of this consultation. And it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be crucial in terms of assessing that overarching picture of value for money. Yeah, yeah. The the Aspinall Philp amendment. Um, <laughs> so, what, why is yeah, it Philp Aspinall? Oh, you told me the other day that you preferred the elision of uh, the L coming onto the P. Anyway, <laughs> I'm happy to go for the Philp Aspinall. Um, so, uh, <laughs> the I think I think separating the costs and charges. Uh, between administration or trustee and governance costs um, and investment costs, I think is 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 vital. Um, I worry about creating two net figures now um, and yeah. essentially requiring an employer to minus one off the other to work out what their admin charges. Yeah. I think just give me a gross performance figure. Tell me, um, you know, uh, an administration cost. Tell me an investment cost. And, you know, by all means, have a kind of a, a fourth row, a fourth column here, which says, you know, A minus B minus C equals D by all means. Yeah. But, you know, it should be 100% transparent what those costs are. We, of course, know, um, you know, if you're a member, there's a member born, a, a direct member per, per customer charge, then, you know, the investment cost is not representative. And, uh, you know, if I've got a deferred member, it's very different from an active member. Yeah. We get that there are, there's there's nuances here but trying to pull them into two net figures when i just want a gross figure and a description of how the charges work and just to treat those employers as you know maybe slightly more sophisticated than than i have any right to claim that every employer is mm. but you know just put the data in in their hands I, I think that's my overall plea here yeah and um one of the points in the consultation i think um one of the more detailed questions um, is around you know what the barriers there are to separating out separating out charges, um, sort mm. of the difference between sort of admin and investment because we do know that a lot of uh, pensions are just done you know um, or just priced in a bundled way, and I think um, from the conversations that we've had is that um, it might not always be easy um, because of um, how schemes have been set up or because of internal admin processes, um, but they're the you know, they're the ones that, um, well, you know, they're, they're artificial barriers in a way, and there's absolutely mm. no reason why um, there shouldn't be an allocation that can be done between admin and investment. Yeah, I'd, I'd go further. Um, you know, it's a bit like the transaction cost narrative of going on a decade ago. If you don't have the data in front of you, you cannot claim that you know that they're good value. Mm. So if you're unable to split your investment manager costs, your investment operation and governance costs from your administration and trustee governance costs, then you must be delivering poor value. Um, and okay, I understand that there's people who work for big, you know, particularly life company or investment manager providers who own administration and, and, and master trusts, that splitting out half a job goes here and half a job goes there, you know, may be hard. But, um, you know, I think it's very, very necessary uh, and for you to put your hand on heart and claim that you know the value for money of the the proposition without that, for me, just feels weak. Yeah. It feels weak. Yeah. Um, and go to you know the Australian Super Trust system and say that that that's that's what you're doing, and I think you're going to be laughed at. Go to to Canada and tell the big um, you know places like CPPIB. Yeah. Go to Calpers and Calsters and say that, and then you you're just going to be the butt of a joke. Mm. So it's time for the UK to grow up. We have to split these costs out. Out. you have to be able to attribute them um i mean we we touched on with julius um uh in last week's episode um, maybe i'm losing track two weeks ago episode uh episode uh 11 was it, it, with julius it, it, it's two episodes ago but it was last week when we're recording this and we're recording this oh, yeah. on a saturday afternoon this will be three episodes ago we are <laughs> Um, this episode has no numbering either, no, just to throw just to, off all totally future episodes. Uh, so when we were talking to Julius Purcell, I, I asked the question of essentially investment budgets and trustee uh, roles and responsibilities. Uh, I think I would go further than the discussion we had, which is to split the pecuniary conflict that essentially underspending your budget 
uh, improves the profit for the, the provider. Mm. I think one of the things here about splitting investment charges, investment costs from administration costs, costs should be to align okay so the maybe the provider is the one who makes the money from administration and uh, you know the trustee budgets yep. uh, the trustees should be just in charge of an investment budget um, maybe they're not allowed to overspend it uh, but if they underspend it that profit goes to the member as opposed to being buried somewhere in into um, you know a life company's uh, PL. so I, I think in here splitting out attributing by jobs, attributing by governance is a really important thing. And, uh, you know, I'd go a lot further than is kind of outlined in this consultation. And I look forward to the response to the consultation, which hears this. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that the bundle charge can hide all sorts of sins. Um, mm. And, you know, we, 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 we know that, um, you know, there's been massive cross subsidy between sort of investment and um, admin. Um, and, and, and sometimes that's okay. Um, if a scheme is of different maturity and all of that type of stuff. But I do think that that transparency is really important. And and I think that it, you know, transparency is good uh, from the investment mm. management industry's point of view on this, because I think, um, you know, um, there is obviously lots of cost pressures um, within DC. But, you know, from... Uh, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I hesitate to say this, Nico, but I've actually felt a bit sorry for um, some of the asset managers on some of this because, <laughs> because, you know, ultimately, I think that people think that they're probably getting a much bigger slice of the pie um, than they actually yeah. are. Um, so they yeah. should, as, a, as a sector, they should definitely welcome this, 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 this transparency and focus on, on, on value. And then, you know, it's up to them to prove that value and develop solutions yeah. that really have the alignment of interest for scheme members and that, you know, are structured in such a way that they can deliver what uh, trustees and, um, you know, what's in the best, what, what, what trustees want and what's in the best interest of members. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody wants to go back to, you know, the pre-charge cap world where there were places where a closet, a closet tracking fund, you know, basically a passive fund might be charging, you know, 1% per annum. Um, nobody wants to go back to that world. That's crazy, isn't it? But I think <laughs> it, it is, right? Um, but when, when the if you get this transparency and people start to realise that their investment proposition is being, uh, you know, it, it has a budget of three basis points, right? Mm. 3% of that, that kind of scandalous ripoff. And that therefore, the only thing they can do is essentially invest in market cap weighted equities, um, and have really very limited diversification, a declining uh, opportunity set and universe because stuff is coming out of listed markets. Yeah. You know, very little kind of sense of somebody sitting over a crystal ball and thinking about what the future looks like because that costs money as well. Okay, you know, active asset allocation might be difficult and there's lots of different beliefs, but, you know, there's none of it in the industry because you just can't afford to. So I, I think if we can just shine the, 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 the torch um, onto hey, how can you actually look after a member's pension for three basis points? I think, Nico, uh, this is something that we can uh, we can pick up now, um, not least because um, I think this is something you wanted to, to raise about the subjectivity of VFM. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess when I read the consultation, you know, there's a number of points which says we need to make value for money objective. Um, and I, I think that is the wrong intention. That's the wrong uh, kind of understanding here. Um, we are all different and we have uh, propositions in the DC space, in the master trust space, targeting different parts of the market. So, you know, that subjectivity, when we all come together with subjective views, you know, that's how we form a market. Mm. So um, I think we need to find a way that that subjectivity can be encompassed by the value for money assessment um, and a, uh, let's say, a now pensions who has a severely restricted choice because they think that that is going to weaken value for money um, for an inertial default member uh, can be compared to, you know, say, one of the more um, uh, kind of savings platform master trusts, which might have many tens uh, or potentially hundreds of choices available to them. 
you know, in the one on the one side, um, those choices cost money, and for a default member, potentially risk them weakening their returns because they don't understand those choices. Yep. It must be bad value to offer lots of choice. On the other side, you potentially got a very engaged, uh, more wealthy consumer. Those choices are, are, are really important to enable them to actually tailor their pension um, and and also harmonize with other kind of savings opportunities that they have. Mm. So in that world where we have kind of uh, subjective choices, I think that investment budget is another kind of part of that. So, you know, could I have a belief which says three basis points is appropriate because, you know, passive is king. The best way for you to invest is by not uh, kind of reaching your hand in and do any kind of asset allocation or stock weighting. Yeah, I mean, absolutely you could. Um, could I also have a belief set which says actually, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 basis points enables me to invest in the climate transition, uh, to invest in leveling up, to provide social housing, to invest in venture capital and, and the technology world that's that's coming for climate change and, you know, biotechnology and all sorts of other things. It enables me to screen those market cap equities. It enables me to do asset allocation, you know, to express beliefs that say that I think those are going to be valuable. I would rather see the beliefs than some sort of objective, one size fits all kind of approach. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I I think we need to recognise we need to cherish the subjectivity of these decisions. Yeah, and I think um, you know we 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 had Andy Cheseldine on, didn't we? Um, again, mm. for one of the earlier podcasts, who's developed quite a nice framework for thinking about some of these things. But I think what you know what we're not saying is that objectivity isn't important. Yeah, uh, mm. because there is stuff that you can measure. There are sort of um, statistics and uh, metrics which could be useful if they're standardised and presented in a certain way. Um, you know, let's just think about uh, the admin side for the moment. And you think about sometimes how SLAs are presented, you know, um, is 95% performance against a five-day SLA um, better than worse than 100% mm. performance of a um, SLA, which specifies 10 working days, you know. Um, yeah. You know, measuring the same thing to allow that ca comparability has got to be a good thing. But I think what we're saying is that um, by its very nature, there's some subjectivity, there's some judgment in this because different people have different needs and they want different things. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think if you try and make what you think of being an objective framework, essentially what you're doing is picking one subjective framework and disadvantaging everybody else, everybody who essentially you know, wants to offer choice or doesn't want to offer choice or wants to be actively managed or, yep. you know, promotes um, you know, engagement or kind of uh, smooth uh, administration services all as leading towards better outcomes for the membership that they have. Yep. You know, you're essentially picking one of those bundles and going, that is what we're now going to kind of lobotomize ourselves and say is objective. But it's not objective. It's just you imposing your subjective view on people. Um, so we're not going to talk about Kant, are we, Darren? But uh, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> we're, he's in the space of uh, wanting us to recognise that you know we 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 cannot be objective, right? We we have to just pull out our subjectivity and examine it. And for me, that makes a better governed trustee uh, trustee board because you know they're actually talking about their fallibility and their beliefs. Yeah. Um, and and. If you can't talk about your beliefs, you can't talk about whether they are coming to pass and whether you need to review your beliefs. You're just kind of in a one size fits all, doesn't matter kind of state. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Like, um, you know, if you didn't have different beliefs, if you didn't um, have different weightings on things that are that you think are important and you think are important for your membership, then you might as well just have one scheme, mightn't you? Um, yeah. And not embrace competition and not embrace innovation and not embrace diversification. So I think, um, yeah, trying to shoehorn stuff into one sort of particular view of the world for VFM can be quite dangerous. Um, mm. So I, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that this also sort of plays into, you know, some of the controversy that we've had around this pod, Nico, <laughs> um, caused by some of the discussion we've had on, um, you know, retail versus institutional. And I know there's yeah. a question within the uh, consultation document on the on the phasing of the approach, and um, you know, to my mind, I think that look, you know, I, I I get why any reform like this has to be staged. Yeah, um, there's some big questions here. Um, we need to start somewhere, and um, you know, 
putting decumulation off and not going with decumulation first there's some big questions mm-hmm. around that that we that we need to grapple with that i know you're quite keen um for that mm-hmm. to be in yep. an early phase um but i'm quite keen for retail to be in phase one um i think that you know and, and it's just really building on the discussion and the debate that we've just had that if we if we if we don't have it in phase one then how can we give people the information and the tools to compare and to make those judgments and and also i think that if it's if it's not in phase one then your phase one framework is going to be heavily skewed towards workplace yeah mm, so yeah. so for the avoidance of any doubt yeah i'm not saying retail good versus workplace bad or you know workplace good versus retail bad I'm not making a value judgment on that i do have my views on that you know i'd mm. always be in the work uh, place or, or workplace uh, um, camp when it comes to this stuff but you know if people want that choice and if the industry wants to offer that choice that can only be a good thing what i'm saying is we just need that comparability we need that standardization um we need um the metrics out there so that you can you can have that fair comparison so people can um you know not be guided but but have the information in front of them on which they can they can make their decisions and i think this is particularly important because of the the level of consolidation that we're seeing at the moment and you know there are retail consolidators out there that are you know saying to people you know come and join us you know we're a low charging scheme that is above the charge cap you know um so i think yeah. we, we we need that transparency around this uh because it's very easy to pull the wool over people's eyes mm. yeah i mean i i kind of i i think i disagree but um it's it comes from the same place so uh for me uh i i'm just going to go up the kind of strategic <laughs> ladder a little bit um i don't know why there are both retail pensions and workplace pensions competing for the same pots um i understand why retail pensions uh existed um they existed because there are plenty of people working for employers who didn't put people into uh, a pension scheme yeah um so that that's way where, where they came from um you know, people who wanted to top up their pensions that the workplace provider uh, wouldn't allow them to, that was a retail solution. Yep. Um, so now that we are, we've pushed into the long grass yet again, you know, talking about the self-employed, um, talking about, you know, nowhere in here, Darren, is like the responsibilities of an employer. Yep. Um, so and that's the, lacking you know, from the a... AE framework, actually. So, you know, if you go back to the roots yep. of some of this, then... You know, there is obviously an obligation on the employer to choose a scheme and to be compliant with auto enrolment. Yep. You know, um, there's not a lot in there about the type of scheme and making sure that it's a scheme that's going to be good for members. And, you know, that might be yep. another thing that we come on to because, you know, if employers aren't making this judgment and assessment and holding providers to account, then who is? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know where there's this massive grey area Um you know, why should someone go into a retail scheme when they want to retire? It's a failure of the institutional schemes, right? It's a failure of the workplace schemes to offer them decumulation properly. Yeah. Um, why should someone have to use a retail platform to consolidate their parts? It's a data flow problem, right? So I, there are, there will be in the future remain good reasons why there are retail schemes. Mm. At the moment, until we can actually kind of draw a perimeter around the usage, um, then I think it's very hard to come back to that sort of subjective, why am I in a retail scheme? How do I compare the value for it? You know, there are definitely people who uh, feel that what they want to do is kind of trade in individual stocks, um, use it to kind of put their own property portfolios into pensions and do uh, some exciting stuff that they can do in SIPs and nowhere else. I get that. You're never going to find, coming back to where we agree, we're never going to find one framework which enables a kind of a workplace institutional um, inertial default type auto-enrollment scheme comparing a basis of comparison with that SIP world, you know, which is either favourable to the workplace one if you take it from the SIP or is favourable to the um, uh, the SIP one if you take it from the, the institutional. No, indeed. So I think being clear as to what we're assessing for me is my plea. Yeah. Um, and 
I, 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 it feels like I'm the one who's copped the controversial controversy <laughs> on this because uh, I said, you know, if you if you hold up retail to an institutional framework, it is not value for money. I stand by that. Um, I think I should also add, if you hold up institutional to a retail framework, it is not value for money. Yeah. The problem is that we're not clear as to what that, that retail framework is at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's about the framework and how you compare. And I think that yeah. um, I think we need to be explicit about that and we need to be open about that. Um, and, you know, just having retail in phase two, to my mind, means that oh, I, I get the fear that we're going to be sort of brushing it under the carpet a bit mm. and we'll never get around to doing it. Um, which is my worry. Um, but I think, you know, like, this, you know, it is about that wider framework, isn't it? It is about sort of understanding the trade-offs. It's about understanding the, the wants of, 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 um, of, of savers, but then giving them the information in a transparent way to be, so they can make those value judgments. Mm. Um, the the, the yeah. other sort of point around this that has come up quite a lot as well is, um, you know, it's not just the retail versus institutional in terms of the phasing. Um, there's the whole decumulation story as well. And I know you've got quite strong views on that, Nico. Yeah, I mean, uh, so for me, it, it comes back to that kind of framework conversation, um, which is if you don't put into the framework what you intend this product to deliver, i.e. a retirement income, then you're not going to have a framework which works. Mm. And so to me, this is like building a, a roof without laying the foundations, you know, fundamentally decumulation is the point of saving into a pension uh, and without putting it into the framework you know why do we have tax advantage for pension savings yeah. why aren't we just comparing this to ISAs and cash lump sums at any point in time that we we choose uh, it, you know we have to have stronger beliefs about the purpose of pension savings uh, we've heard a number of times from a number of our interviewees, you know, uh, income for life. Yeah. Uh, this is not a bolt on. This is just the fundamental architecture of value for money for me. Yeah, for me. It's, a, but it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because obviously the um, this will change when George Osborne, um, <laughs> you know, stood up in, I think it was 2014 and removed the requirement to annuitize, which was probably, you know, the right thing to do. But But since then, you know, we haven't had that, um, sort of strategic discussion, that strategic narrative set out about sort mm. of what pension saving is actually for. Um, and I know Treasury always sort of bang on about how much money they spend on tax relief. Okay, they don't spend money on tax relief. It's about tax foregone and all of that type of stuff. But mm -hmm. you know, yeah. um, but you, you you know why why are they giving um, why are they giving people um, sort of tax relief? Why why is tax relief granted? Well, it's because you want people to save for the long term, um, lock money away and not fall back on the state. Um, yeah. So I do think that there is a conversation that needs to happen around decumulation. I I think it's quite difficult. Um, like, so, I, you know, I 100% agree that we need uh, at retirement stuff and decumulation to be part of this framework and we need to get it in there as soon as possible. Quite hard to um, assess if we don't know what we're assessing it against or assessing it for, though. And I think there's a bigger strategic question there that we're probably going to have to spend some time debating and discussion, discussing and getting an answer to um, before we can go into that sort of full VF, giving it the full VFM treatment. And also, I think, um, you know, one of the themes we've, we've had as well, uh, coming back to some of the discussions, is the, you know, the, 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 the tension between Treasury and DWP on this stuff. And because the, the, the purpose of tax relief and because... The, you know the the whole incentive to to save for the long term is driven by treasury rules you're going to have to sort of get alignment between dwp and the treasury as to sort of what what this system is actually trying to achieve and what it's for yeah i mean I, so i just i think it's actually quite easy to mention uh, to measure um you know as you said the annuity market wasn't offering good value um but you can measure you know the value that you now deliver against annuities mm. um and if they were bad value then you know drawdown in a scheme should offer better value um and you know that's not it's not beyond the wit of man no, and no. um where i think the market would then go is, is is saying well okay there's no default um you know there's there's flexibility yeah that's that's something that people value flexibility and the not being locked into things is a thing that you value so 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 value it yeah, right this yeah. is the subjectivity yeah. all over again yeah i think the desire to make this objective 
is the thing that is stopping decumulation from being in the framework. Right. If if we could make this just, it's okay to be subjective, guys. Yeah. You know, it's it's you're human. Everybody has slightly different. We all disagree, right? That's cool. That's actually that's that's at the heart of why we debate these things and why you go out to consultation. Yeah, no, of course, Arsenal are so, there, you know better than Tottenham, aren't they? And um, not only <laughs> not only have we got sort of object- some things are objective. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> you know, you, you just look at the numbers, look at the stats, look at the league titles, one, and all that type of stuff. But you know, but there's a I would I would argue there's an objective measurement there, but also a subjective one as well because of the quality of the football in that. Anyway, we we we, we did we 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 we, we, we might we, edit we, this we, out in the written. No, no, we won't. No, we won't. Definitely not. Definitely not. Um, we are coming up against time, though, because we did say that we're not going to rub it on for as long as we usually do okay. on this one. So um, I, th- I think... Um, Let me do our fifth point. Yeah, so um, um, and, and this, this I think, is about sort of looking forward, isn't it, Nico? And this is something that you're particularly keen on. Yeah, I mean, look, so... Um, and I think it was also kind of stimulated by Julius, um, uh, which I think is episode 11. Um, you know, it is absolutely right that we have past performance in our measure of value for money. Um, but it is a terrible outcome if we think that that is the only kind of quality measure that we need. Um, we have to be uh, recognizing the subjectivity, uh, coming back to that again, of uh, you know assessing the quality of the trustee decision-making, um, assessing the quality of essentially how that might work in future in markets that we don't yet understand. Um, you know, if we just boil that down to projecting some assumptions out into the future, then I fear that we're just going to get assumption gaming. Um, you're just going to find that in periods of equity market booms, you know, it makes sense that we put all of our eggs into the equity basket uh, and vice versa. You get people jumping around on the ship, um, demonstrating the systemic risk uh, of of pensions as, as they did last year in the DB world. So, I, I think we have to have some sort of a qualitative, subjective process for us to understand the future returns likely to come out of a pension scheme. Um, and that cannot just be extrapolating past performance. Uh, and I know that Henry Henry Tapper has, uh, you know, fundamentally disagrees with us. And I think that's, that's fine. Uh, but we have to be putting the balance into this consultation response. For me, future returns are much more important than past returns. Because, you know, the, 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 what are you changing pensions for? You're not changing pensions because people were bad in the past. You're changing pensions because you think they're going to be bad in the future or good in the future. Mm. So, so that is the use of this value for money assessment is on the future assessment. Um, but also, and I, I think, I, you know, I don't go on. Go no, on. but we did say, you know, because we did explore this uh, point quite a lot with Julius. Um, and, you know, I think I asked him, um, you know, how do you stop it being gamed? You know, what is the sort of framework that you, you need to have to ensure that, um, you know, this just isn't sort of cloud cuckoo land forecasting or, you know, analytics? And, you know, um, Julius answered that very eloquently. Um, one of the things that we haven't sort of really talked about yet is governance. And governance mm-hmm. has got to come into this as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, this is where I think they, they, the government get very scared, which is essentially uh, assessing the quality of governance processes. Mm. Um, but the example I gave with the, the, the discussion we had with Julius was, you know, asset managers, multi-asset funds, where a lot of the consultants role is to talk about investment process, yep. uh, investment beliefs, to ask managers to demonstrate um, that process and uh, how their beliefs are evolving. And, you know, I think that's where we need to get to. Um, we're, we're kind of in a world, aren't we, Darren, where we've got a very weak buying process. Yeah. You know, um, the employer really doesn't care about anything except for cost. Uh, the consultants are not incentivized to, to demonstrate that, you know, higher cost might lead to better quality or better value. Um, and, you know, there's a big risk with this consultation that we just reinforce all of those practices. And I know the government wants to get us into productive finance or whatever we call it in this kind of next wave. Um, and, and I do think the quality process, um, you know, is for me is a key plank of that. Yeah. And, and, and for me, partly it's about, so what, and I think this is a, this is quite a nice segue into our 
our sixth and final sort of mm. strategic point. And then we'll just, um, after we've done this point, Nikkei, we'll just um, do a quick wash up and see if there's any particular things that we've missed from the individual sort of uh, uh, questions within uh, mm-hmm. within the consultation, but I think one of the one of the things that the, the you know one of the, one of the proposals within the consultation is that you know there's there's different outcomes and different costs uh, between sort of employer cohorts and employer types within um, any any scheme, yeah. And I think um, you use your actuarial um, uh, prowess um, to say that you know ultimately you could have something like was it three thousand two hundred data points or something? Yeah, that's the number I came up. With. You know, um, so whether that's accurate or not, I don't know. Maybe people could write in and sort of you know uh, care prove Nico wrong. That's it. Like we can have that as the hashtag for the um, for this episode. You know, prove Nico wrong. Um, but 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 how 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 are people going to use this? Yeah, um, you know how how do you get that comparability? How do you get the sort of granularity that you you sort of need to to drive change? But then how do you you know um, make it sort of accessible and easy to understand? And 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 it goes back to me to the so what? Like what are people going to do with this information? Yeah, yeah, and with three thousand two hundred data points, you know that is a telephone book where you you need like some sort of a decoding basis to go and go with your yellow highlighter uh, and work out which of these data points link back to you Um, and i I think this is where kind of the motivation of henry's product with age wage is 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 much better which is you know just provide essentially either personalized at one end of this dream which is where he comes to or from my perspective a gross performance figure Mm. um you know, there's a whole money weighted versus time weighted discussion, yep. which we, we don't have time for. But, um, you know, just provide one figure and tell people their charges. Right. And by all means, give them a table of charges, how they vary by employer size, uh, you know, premium by uh, old uh, AUM, um, you know, by all means, give those kind of tables. But but, you know, fundamentally netting this off maybe this comes back to our first point as well netting these off makes for so much more complication so much harder to read just give a gross performance figure the charge that applies to you um and you know some comparability as to how that charge would change if your employment base went you know up down or or, you know if you'd been with the scheme for a bit longer um and you know the industry doesn't want to give that comparison and that transparency because it will lead to people uh, understanding that they're paying for others to be in the scheme, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I I think it's a good thing that the industry is kind of forced to explain why it's a good, why why it's rational that their charges are like that. Um, so yeah, this is, it's a bit of a mess, isn't it? It's it a is, bit of a yeah. mess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and- well, I think Des, when, when we had Des on, you know, he sort of recognised this as maybe one of the areas that had been pushed back on and, you know, the final proposals, I think, will look a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what the final proposals actually sort of come out with as a result of, um, you know, this podcast, among other things, Nico. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Should we skim through, because just looking at the, the kind of questions, I think we've probably covered, in terms of the actual questions, what we would like to. Yeah. Um, I think what we haven't covered is the missing questions, mm. um, which um, uh, the, there's probably a couple of points. So we have talked about governance. It really surprised me that somewhere between question 12 and question 13, they didn't kind of... So th- I think there's a paragraph which says we're not going to have a governance measure. Yeah. Um, it really surprised me that they didn't have a question which said, like, do you agree that we shouldn't do a governance measure? Because, you know, fundamentally, I think we've we've given justice to the fact that we disagree. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, um, you know, th- there is value judgments within... I think where we've got to is there are, there are subjective and there are value judgments with any ass- proper assessment of value for money. Um, mm-hmm. And you need people in place and the processes in place and the frameworks in place to be able to uh, make those judgments and make those judgments in a, in an effective way. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, on the same page there. So um, the next question that I thought was missing was somewhere between question seventeen and eighteen. So talking about the uh, red, amber, green system. Um, surprisingly, there's there's no kind of discussion as to uh, there's no open place for us to respond to a question on the RAG enforcement table. So so is it fair? Um, and yeah, I didn't want to comment on the red or green, actually, but uh, sorry, the red or amber, the green, somewhere in there, it goes like, oh, we'll be talking to you about why you're green and 
um, you know, it's just like, well, hang on. So either you trust this process to result in people saying we're green and here we are, um, and therefore the ambers and reds are you want, the ones you want to chase up, or you just disagree with the industry marking its own homework and everybody should have a supervisory relationship and this is a waste of time anyway. Yep. Um, so, you know, why the green didn't exempt you from potentially having this sort of regulatory contact i don't understand i do not understand well if we, but if we think about some of the drivers behind this consultation yeah um, and and not just think about the assessment of value for money but looking sort of beyond some of this um mm. but you know we know that the government wants consolidation yeah whether that's master trust single employer trust or, or whatever um it wants to regulate fewer bigger um schemes and I think that, you know, at the moment, it's having to use quite blunt tools, yeah, um, that go right across the industry to um, get people to sit up and think, okay, should we really be in this market? Should we really be running this a scheme? You know, and they and they do that under the, the, the concept of value for money. Yeah. yeah. So I think if you look at the large mass market auto-enrollment master trusts, um, and if you consider it within a institutional or work-based value for money framework, look, you know, this is a this a why, almost why bother doing this exercise because they're going to be, um, you know, quite high in the pie pile, yeah, yeah, on this. And if they're not, then blimey, you know, they shouldn't be sort of red, amber, green. What the hell have they got doing um, having author, master trust authorization? You know, um, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it's that sort of existential. It's that sort of fundamental. Yeah, um, I think that you know. They're, the government are probably using this to think, okay, you know, this is going to sort of knock off a, a whole load of other single employer trust-based schemes and the ones that really are at the bottom. And ultimately, you can see a system in the future whereby regulation is done in the trust-based space, much more akin to how it's done in the FCA space, which is you know right. close supervision, having those continuous conversations and ultimately, part of the regulator's role is to kick the tyres and making sure that providers and schemes aren't pulling the wool over their eyes and stuff. So I get where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, but also, I think that, you know, um, that could change going forward as the market consolidates and as the regulatory relationship between schemes and the regulator actually evolves over time. Yeah. Um so maybe this moves us on to what I thought was my final missing question, which was around the compliance enforcement powers for the pensions regulator. Um, so essentially, the proposal is that uh, the regulator will be able to wind up schemes um, and to to force trustees to go through that that process mm. um, if if they're not willing to wind themselves up. Um, but there's a missing question. They don't ask us whether we think that's good or bad, right? Mm. Um, but, you know, so whenever I think you and I talk about regulation, I've now convinced you, haven't I, Darren, that we need a special DC regulator. Oh, I don't know. Like, did, uh, did you see Robin? <laughs> we, 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 we talked about Robin Ellison on our podcast as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. And there was an, and I know we're not doing news at today's uh, response, but there was a piece in Professional Pensions um, that I think got published uh, yesterday, so on Friday. Um, and I would have had it as my news story. Uh, but it was uh, uh, Robin Ellison arguing for in a tongue and piece, uh, in a tongue in cheek way, why we need another pensions regulator, um, or, or why we need um, more regulators. And when um, when I was reading that, I did think of you, Nico. <laughs> so this is now the Ellison Aspinall Philp intervention. It is. So, um, <laughs> but he, he know, was we... taking the mick. He was being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, I. I just think we've got a pensions regulator whose eyes is off the ball of DC. Um, and, you know, if we're to beef up the regulator so that they can go and close up DC schemes who are bad value for money, mm. then number one, we need to look at what master trust assurance means. Um, because fundamentally, there are going to be surviving single employer trust schemes. Um, shouldn't they be held to the same standards? Yeah. Isn't that just a better stick to go and beat people? Here are the here's the set of standards. If you couldn't get master trust assurance, then you've got five years to go and consolidate into someone who can. Mm. Um, that for me is a kind of better approach. Um, and then you're into a world where you've got 40, 50, 60, you know, long-term surviving schemes, and the regulator has direct one-to-one -one supervisory relationships with them. Um, and all of this stuff 
is maybe now a regulatory function to say this is where we consider the values to be against these you know each of our um uh authorized master trusts subjective views as to where they should exist so it, again there's a lot in here which feels like a sort of halfway house between a strategy and tactics um and yeah it just surprised me they didn't want to talk about the enforcement powers um given that that's dot 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 where you go to at the end of a value for money assessment yeah, yeah. you know if you're red or amber this is where we need to be discussing what powers the, the regulator has but also i think um i, I think all right and i think um you know this isn't going to be the last word on this um for, mm. for a couple of reasons i think one you know part of what this is consultation or call for evidence or you know I, I get confused whether they do consultations or call for evidences now and what the difference is between them and, and and stuff but this but this hasn't got sort of legislative or regulatory um sort of proposals in the sense of here's the regulation yeah so mm -hmm. i do think that there'll be another bite of the cherry at this and also i think that ultimately we don't need to have all of the answers uh, on day one I think this is going to be something that does evolve over time. And I think there are some bigger questions than even value for money, yeah, um, that probably need um, discussing, debating, developing the consensus on, you know, within our pension system um, that sort of are above this whole value for money type, um, you know, discussion. And, um, you know, we're going to have to have those discussions sooner rather than later if we're going to develop a pension system and deliver a pension system that is going to really work for members. Um, I agree. Um, I think the only the only point I'd put is this is not day one. This is no, it's not. This no, is yeah. this is eleven years after the start of auto enrolment, um, and all of these are reasonably foreseeable problems. Yeah. yeah. So um, the sooner we have this pensions commission, and it's another thing that you and I have spoken at length about. We have. The sooner we get this pensions commission to go back up to the top of the tree, talk about the strategy work out what it means to be a master trust yeah. you know what it means to go uh, into post-retirement in a master trust or any other kind of dc vehicle uh, what the purpose of these things are you know the sooner we can do that the sooner we can get to a value for money definitions that, yeah. that we actually agree with yeah. right? and, and i think you know we, um, that that discussion will happen and it will you know it, it will it will happen at some point um and it will become all-encompassing and consider all of these issues in the round but you know, just to just to say that I'm glad we're having this discussion now. You know, mm, uh, yeah, not not just us, Nico, but you know, I'm glad that the DWP and the industry is having this discussion now, uh, because yeah, better late than never. So I think on that note, we've probably given Des enough to listen to, haven't we? Hopefully, yeah, we are going to send him a transcript, aren't we? So he will get. So yeah. he, you know, he he won't just have to sort of um, listen and and frantically take notes. We will. We will be using yeah. some AI software dun, dun, yeah. dun, um, <laughs> to actually sort of turn um, what Nico and I have said into something that is, well, let's say comprehensible and and, 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 and probably slightly tighter than this rambling discussion that we've had today. You are asking a lot of AI software. Um, <laughs> comprehensible is not what you're going to get. Um, Good. Right. Uh, well, it's a pleasure as always talking to you, Darren. Um, Bad, I likewise. It's a pleasure. I hope you're having a nice holiday as we speak. You'll be, um, as you as you listen, let's say, you'll be, uh, is it on Tenerife you're going to? Uh, no, um, uh, Lanzarote. Lanzarote. Um, so I hope you're having a nice time. Future Darren. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, yeah, until our next episode, thank you all for listening and speak soon. Yeah, catch you soon. Goodbye, everyone.